Welcome to Two World Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I'm Troy Harkin. And this is our seventh episode. We are looking at The Dead Zone, the 1983 film. We'll also look at the book and TV series. We have a special guest, Stephen King fan, Bev Vincent. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Hold on, should we have a spoiler alert spoiler? Just just to prepare people for a spoiler alert? Like, there's going to be a spoiler alert. You Get ready. Are you set? Okay, here's the yep. spoiler alert. David tells me <laughs> that this episode will be a pimped out 1958 Plymouth Fury. There will be a new stereo, a new exhaust, new paintwork, bodywork, tail fins, wings, running board, and spoilers. There will be spoilers. And full disclosure, because I hate puns, David wrote that. We are recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, Troy and Bev are Facebook friends. Let's introduce our special guest. Bev Vincent is the author of several books, including The Road to the Dark Tower and The Stephen King Illustrated Companion, as well as over 100 short stories, including appearances in Ellery Queens, Alfred Hitchcock's, and Black Cat Mystery Magazines and Cemetery Dance Magazine. He has been writing News from the Dead Zone for Cemetery Dance for two decades. His work has been nominated for the Stoker twice, Edgar, Ignotus, and ITW Thriller Awards. In 2018, he co-edited the anthology Flight or Fright with Stephen King, and his recent collaboration with Brian Keane is called Dissonant Harmonies. To learn more, visit bevvincent.com. That's B-E-V-V-I-N-C-E-N-T dot com. Welcome, Bev. Welcome, David. Welcome, Troy. Good to be here with you guys. Really glad to hear you, have you here, Bev. Uh, before we get into the dead zone, Troy and I would like to know about your early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre, to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think Ambrose Bierce may have said it best in the Cynic's Dictionary from 1906 and the Devil's Dictionary in 1911 when he defined a clairvoyant as a person, commonly a woman, who has the power of seeing that which is invisible to her patron, namely that he is a blockhead. When we talk about genre, we are not talking about mysteries or westerns. We are looking at speculative things, things that could not happen in real life. Bev, what was your first speculative genre memory? When I was on vacation with my family one summer, I would have been about eight, maybe. Um, we went to Maine, and um, at the checkout of this store, I picked up two books. Uh, one of them was The Jungle Book, but the other one was Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. And that book has loomed large in my life ever since. I read it to pieces at the time and many times since. And when I look back on those stories, I would swear that 
each one of those little tales is at least 10 or 15 pages long because they seem to have so much story packed in them. But when I go back and reread them, Telltale Heart, Cask of Montalado, they're only three or four pages, but they just have this pro profound impact. Uh, what was the first um, speculative genre thing that you actually fell in love with and why? Well, that, that's that's a hard one. I, I guess I would have to say it was it was Poe, because you know I, I grew up in a very small rural community in northern New Brunswick, and my access to entertainment was limited to one television channel and the library, and so books became my world. And other than reading things like the Hardy Boys, I just I just was a attracted to short story collections and especially ones like the Alfred Hitchcock anthologies. But the Poe collection, like I said, it just, it just fired my imagination. Um, it showed me things that I didn't really get to see on CBC television. Um, and it's, it has stayed with me, you know, 50 years plus on. Yeah, you know, we've had a number of our guests who their first, introduction to genre was also their all-time favorite as well. Um, thanks a lot. And what we would like to do is just get into your, uh, uh, your all-time genre faves. Now, here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre things. We're just looking for titles, but if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about the dead zone soon. If Troy can ask these questions, that would be great. I can do that, David. So, Bev, what is your favorite genre of film? So, as a preamble to this, I'm going to say I am genetically incapable of picking favorites. Mm -hmm. I'll do my best for these things, but when everybody, whenever anybody asks me my favorite anything at all, there's just so many possibilities I can't even narrow. I hear you. But I, I would you. say so. You know, it's <laughs> like I, I know what my favorite ice cream flavor is, but beyond that. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I would say, is one that I could watch over and over again. But okay. I'd have to throw in also 2001, Alien, <laughs> The Thing, you know, so, but yeah. I have to tell you, I, I think so far on our show, everybody has thrown in 2001 as their favorite <laughs> film, haven't they, David? I think everybody did. Yes. And yes. so I actually did a rewatch of it recently, and yeah, it still stands up. Anyway, so I'm going to keep this torture going then, Bev. Okay. How about favorite genre tv show i would put lost at the top of the list but i would also put a shout out to fringe and the x-files and full disclosure for our audience originally when we uh offered bev um to come on to the show we were going to or he he, he was hoping to do lost but both david and i need to do a lot of catching up on lost and we would like to get you back for that at some point once we get off our asses and <laughs> i mean how bad is it when we can't even watch tv we're too lazy to watch tv right now anyway okay what's your <laughs> if you can get it down to a single episode what would be one of your favorite all-time genre tv episodes uh, episode eight of Twin Peaks: The Return. Uh, oh, you know the yes. one. It's, it's the one with almost no dialogue. Yes, a nuclear explosion, and it explains absolutely everything and absolutely nothing. 
I thought I was the only one. I actually did the uh, the slow clap. I stood and did the slow <laughs> clap during that episode. And then I contacted everybody I knew and said, you have to watch this episode, the greatest thing that's ever been on. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm getting in there too much, David. Uh, what's your favorite genre novel or one of them? In horror, I would say probably The Shining uh, with a, a, sec- a run out to Bag of Bones. In science fiction, I would say the Hyperion books by Dan Simmons, the, the four Hyperion novels, which nice. are also horror novels. How about your favorite genre, shorter work? Now, that's where my brain explodes. There's oh, yeah. just too, too many things to pick, but let me say Elevation by King. Nice. Uh, your favorite genre author? Well, let me think about that. Who could that possibly be? <laughs> well, of course, of course, King. But yeah. I'm going to Joe also, Hill. Yeah, Joe Hill. Yeah, uh, Owen King. Yeah, uh, Peter Straub, Dan Simmons, Ray Bradbury, all top contenders. Nice. Um, favorite genre, theme, or concept? You know that one stumped me for a little bit, but then I settled on sometimes people are the worst monsters we can imagine. Mm. Yeah. Favorite genre, theater production or musical? They did a really cool production of Jekyll and Hyde that came out of Houston a number of years ago. Um, We saw Sweeney Todd in London, which I really, really liked. But uh, Phantom of the Opera. Okay. And sorry, I need to do a sidebar here, David. It just occurred to me. Have you seen either uh, Carrie the Musical or the Misery uh, theater production? No, no, I haven't seen either, but I did participate in a podcast by a group that recently went back to re-explore the Carrie musical. Okay. I'm very curious about both of them. That's why I asked. Um, what's your favorite comic book series or graphic novel? You know, I don't really read that much in that genre, but the one that I read most recently that I really liked was Plunge by Joe Hill. Mm. Oh, and let me recommend to everybody out there, by the way, uh, Sweet Tooth. I I see that Sweet Tooth has been adapted uh, for Netflix as a series, and it's by uh, Canadian Jeff Lemire, and he's just a brilliant writer. Check out uh, Essex County by him. Not genre, that one, but Essex County is a beautiful, beautiful graphic novel. Um, Let's do your favorite genre poem. Well, you know, the easy answer is The Raven by Poe. Mm. But um, in Flight or Fright, we uh, picked up a, a poem by James Dickey, who's the guy who wrote Deliverance, uh, that we used as the code of the book, and it's called Falling. And it's not, I guess it's genre because it's within the mind of somebody who's falling from an airplane. So, you know, there's speculative element to it. All righty. Thanks very much, Bev. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bev. Um, on to the dead zone. Um, Troy Harkin will give some background says it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. The Dead Zone was Stephen King's fifth published novel. The book was begun in 1976 and completed in 77. It was released in August of 1979 through Viking Press. The Dead Zone is the story of a young Castle Rock teacher named Johnny Smith, who, after a night at a carnival with his sweetheart, Sarah, is the victim of a horrific car accident that throws him into a four-year coma. Upon waking, he finds he has the psychic gift of precognition when making contact with those around him. He is also shattered to learn that Sarah is now married with a small child. After a long period of rehabilitation, Johnny is approached by the Castle Rock Police Department to help find a notorious serial killer. He initially turns down the request, but changes his mind once a child is murdered by the Castle Rock Strangler. 
As he investigates, Johnny realizes that the murderer is police officer Frank Dodd. When Dodd learns that Johnny and the Castle Rock police are on to him, he commits suicide. Johnny eventually crosses paths with Greg Stilson, a thuggish politician with his eye on the White House. When Johnny comes face to face with Stilson, he realizes that Stilson, if elected, would unleash nuclear Armageddon on the world. After much deliberation, Johnny Smith decides he must assassinate Stilson to prevent his vision from becoming reality. Johnny travels to a political rally where Stilson is speaking and attempts to shoot him. He misses his target, but Stilson grabs a young boy and holds him up as a human shield, an act that is caught on camera by a photographer and one that ends up ruining Stilson's career. Of course, Johnny is shot dead by those protecting the politician. An epilogue gives us transcripts from a Senate hearing on the shootings, as well as Johnny's letters to his father and the love of his life, Sarah, who we also see make a graveside visit. According to James W. Hall, The Dead Zone was the first King novel to rank in the top 10 best-selling American novels of the year. It was also his first time a book of his went to number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. In November of 1981, Dino De Laurentiis optioned The Dead Zone and offered it to producer Deborah Hill to develop. Hill had previously produced the first three Halloween films, The Fog and Escape from New York. Canadian director David Cronenberg took on The Dead Zone following his work on Videodrome. It was his ninth feature film and the first that was adapted from another writer's source material. Originally, Stephen King supplied a script that focused on the Frank Dodd storyline. Cronenberg and Hill decided to create a script that encapsulated the novel's arc and climaxed with the Greg Stilson storyline. The director and producer, along with screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm, sequestered themselves in a hotel for three days in order to create a new draft of the script. In the end, only Jeffrey Bohm received credit for the screenplay. The film is incredibly loyal to the source material, with the script feeling like a near precis of the book's plot. Of the few elements that are lost in the transition from novel to film is the motif of the Wheel of Fortune that Johnny and Sarah encounter on the midway at the SD Fairgrounds, and the book's aforementioned epilogue. Cronenberg was smart enough to know the film is over once we lose Johnny Smith. Regarding The Wheel of Fortune, King said, I wanted to show that everything is fate. When we say that nothing is predestined and when we say everything is predestined, we are really saying the same thing. We see this underscored throughout the Dark Tower series, where we are often reminded that Ka is a wheel. Filming of The Dead Zone commenced on January 10th of 1983 in the Greater Toronto Area, as well as Niagara-on-the-Lake and Niagara Falls. The roller coaster scene was shot at Canada's Wonderland Amusement Park in York Region, just a hop, skip, and a jump from where I am currently podcasting. The production was blessed with a fabulous cast featuring Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Herbert Lom, Martin Sheen, Tom Skerritt, and Canadian actor Nicholas Campbell as Frank Dodd. Originally, Cronenberg had Campbell in mind to play the lead role. The film adaptation of The Dead Zone was released on October 21st, 1983. It played in theaters for 11 weeks and grossed $20.8 million. In his review of The Dead Zone, Roger Ebert wrote, Walken does such a good job of portraying Johnny Smith, the man with the strange gift, that we forget this is a science fiction or fantasy or whatever, and just accept it 
as this guy's story. He went on to say no other King novel has been better filmed. Keep in mind that The Dead Zone followed big screen versions of Brian De Palma's Carrie and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. The Dead Zone is still considered one of the best Stephen King film adaptations, along with Stand By Me, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Green Mile. A television series based on the novel aired from 2002 to 2007. It starred Anthony Michael Hall as Johnny Smith and aired on the USA Network. Prior to writing The Dead Zone, King had based plots around psychic phenomenon in three of his four books. He would return to such abilities throughout his career, including the books Dr. Sleep, End of Watch, and The Institute. In 2011, he revisited the idea of political assassination in his later-day masterpiece, 11-22-63. The Dead Zone was the first of his novels to be set in Castle Rock. At the time of this recording, King has set four of his novels, as well as various short stories and novellas, in the fictional town. The name Castle Rock comes from William Golding's The Lord of the Flies, a favorite book of King's. Director Rob Reiner later named his production company Castle Rock. David, when Johnny Smith tells you, the ice is gonna break, you best believe him. Thanks a lot, Troy, for that uh wonderful um, description of the dead zone. Um, and uh, Bev, um, please tell us how you were first introduced to the dead zone. Well, the dead zone came out in 1979 and that was uh, my first year at university. I went to Dalhousie university in Halifax and that experience opened up my horizons in a lot of ways. Um, I discovered a lot of new music I'd never heard before. I discovered a lot of new books I'd never had access to before. Uh, and one of the books I picked up in 1979 was Salem's Lot. Just picked it up as a used paperback in a, in a used bookstore. And that got me hooked on King immediately. Um, I fell in love with that book, and I just immediately wanted to find out everything else that that author had written. And so I went back, and in 1979, there weren't that many books out, so you know, I was able to quickly go through the earlier books the dead zone was still in hardcover so i had to wait a little bit for that one because i was a poor college student but it was definitely on my horizon and as soon as it came out in paperback i was on top of it and you had mentioned earlier um, um your love of uh of, sh of short stories did you uh get to night shift pretty quickly i did and you know, it, it remains probably my favorite of his short story collections because I read those stories so often. And I actually sort of started emulating King when I was in, living in residence. I, I wanted to write stories like the ones in Night Shift. So I, I generated a lot of short stories in the 1979 to 82 era, which are very similar to the types of things from Night Shift. Yeah, it's a great collection, and uh, it was sort of my doorway because um, uh, I fell in love with short stories. I was—I don't know that anybody ever put the idea in my head when I was younger, but I just thought, I don't think I can get through a novel. So I, I, I really just gravitated to short stories, and I loved Harlan Ellison and Bradbury and King. And um, yeah, I think Dead Zone and Christine came quickly for me um, just because, uh, you know, I loved everything he was doing and I wanted more. So I sort of jumped into those two, but this is not about me. This is about you, <laughs> David. Uh, <laughs> would you have something uh, for Bev? 
Yeah, I've got, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but when it comes to the dead zone, uh, thanks for letting us know how you were introduced to it. And you may have already sort of answered this question in your response to previous questions. Uh, and if so, please expand on it. But what was it about the dead zone that made it one of your favorites? The interesting thing about the dead zone is, is that even though there are supernatural elements to it, it's a very relatable story. It's, you know, King said that, he, you know, he was had experience as being a school teacher. He wanted to write about a school teacher, uh, but he also wanted to write about somebody who becomes a pariah through no fault of his own. Just circumstances conspire to sort of push him out of the normal uh, life that he had up to that point. You know, he, everything was going for him. He, he had students who loved him he was in love with this uh beautiful the teacher friend of his looked like they were going to get married and then just the world gets together and gangs up on him and says nope you're not gonna have any of that and they throw a transport truck at him and they send him off into a coma when he comes back he's got what everybody assumes is a talent or a power but the, he sees it as a curse because it puts him outside of society. Uh, people are hounding him, but they're also afraid of him. And so just that whole arc of top of the world to the lowest of lows, and then being put in this horrible situation of knowing something that dreadful and feeling like you're obliged to do something about it because if you don't then... And the world could end, or at least, you know, be very severely uh, uh, marred or undercut. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, as far as King's novels go, it's one that has a brilliant story arc. Um, but everything sort of one piece leads to the next, leads to the next, and it's a very well-conceived novel. David and I were, were chatting about King's themes and the sort of the great... Uh, themes that sort of run throughout his work. And uh, I was saying, you know, what makes The Dead Zone such a tragedy is that Johnny Smith, uh, basically, like a lot of other great uh, King characters, he has to stand and be true. He has to, well, at least make the decision if he's going to stand and be true. Um, but unlike books like It and The Stand, um, and, and uh, the Dark Tower books where people find their contact, where they find their group, where they can stand together, Johnny is on his own. And uh, Johnny realizes that in order for him to stand and be true, he's likely going to sacrifice himself, that there's no, no real way out of there. And I guess we sort of see that with Jake Epping in a way, too. He also faces the same uh situation um do you see these these sort of themes throughout the dead zone some of the sort of uh, prefiguring because i guess that's the first time that we have a character that has to stand and be true right in a king novel well the the, the characters in the stand obviously oh right of course yeah well yeah. but i mean i think the difference between jake epping's situation and johnny smith's is jake is trying to change something in the relative future that he knows is going to happen where we have to take Johnny's word for the future that he envisions. Um, 
you know, reading interviews with Cronenberg and, you know, they often asked him, you know, did he feel at all nervous about portraying an assassin as the hero, you know, a political assassin as the hero of the story? And he said, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who've convinced themselves that they can see the future and some of the, you know, assassinations or some of the crazy things they've done makes perfect sense to them and they can rationalize it to themselves, but to the outside world, you know, the people aren't getting on board to say that this guy is doing the right thing. And so the real tragedy at the dead zone is nobody will ever know. Nobody even suspected that he saved humanity because, you know, people looked at Stilson as, you know, as this person who was you know, rising through the ranks of politics, but Johnny knew, or at least we believe he knows. And that's the sort of difference between him and Jake Epping. Right. Yeah, I think uh, King was having a bit of fun with the political side of things and writing up this right-wing character with the hat and all the sayings and all the things that, that he did. Um, uh, one of the things that, that I found uh, interesting because I remembered watching in It's a Wonderful Life and Little Women, just a number of times people have fallen through the ice and how bad a situation that is so and i found out that that's actually a meme or something on the internet this idea of and then they had this long list of films where people fall through ice and then i was thinking of jaws with you know don't go into the water and then i was thinking of the movie commando where um uh, schwarzenegger playing john matrix famously said lit off some steam bennett when he throws this pipe through bennett and steam comes through so i was wondering if we should just simply try to avoid water in all its states well so i'm not sure if you have any response to that bennett. that's pretty hard to do uh, considering you know our, our body is uh, a high percentage water and our planet is a high percentage water so i think if we limited ourselves to avoiding water well first of all we're going to die of thirst so i just think we have to come to peace with water in its various states and our listeners, I want you to know, you can take uh, Bev's information uh, to heart as he's a chemist. This is not like somebody <laughs> saying, you know, you should drink bleach to to, do, to go against COVID. Oh, and speaking of, um, I guess, maybe a bit of a good segue to the person who talked about drinking bleach. Um, David, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but King fans will know that uh, Stephen had quite a, uh, a back and forth with uh, the 45th uh, president of the United States. Um, and, and it's funny because you watch the dead zone now and you see Greg Stilson and compared to uh, the, the most recent American president or the previous American president, Stilson seems downright like almost like a Pollyanna or something, something really, you know, super almost clean compared to uh, uh, Mr. Trump. Um, well, but there's a line in the movie where uh, somebody says, can't they see through this guy? Yeah. Can't, can't yeah. They, I think it's uh, the, the father of the boy that uh, Johnny's tutoring. They say, can't they see through him? But the danger is you have to keep him close enough that if he wins, you're not on the outs with him, but far enough that if he loses, you're not tarnished by his image. Yeah. And there was there was actually a, a line in the book that jumped out at me too. It was a simple, short little line, but it was in describing Stilson when uh, when uh, Johnny uh, is becoming a, a Stilson file. He talks about how basically his father had 
basically nothing but contempt for him or something like that, or little interest in his son. And that sounds like all the descriptions I'd heard about uh, uh, Trump's father uh, when he was growing up and it just sort of gave me a chill. Um, so, so here's a little trivia for you. Yeah. yeah. Greg, Greg Stilson's name apparently comes from Still Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. I had only model. recently heard that. And then, and then you get, um, uh, Johnny, who is basically, you know, like an everyman, like his name totally represents a, uh, Johnny Smith. But, but um, the model for Stilson was Huey Long. Oh yeah. Nice. Where are we off to next, David? Well, the, well, the, the book is, is, um, uh, pretty smart in the sense of, playing up that five year it's it's almost like um rip van winkle kind of thing where you've woken up and suddenly things have changed and how smart it is how it you know it's like um um the the, the greatest time travel movie back to the future where they've gone back in time and they run into the professor and he says, what are you going to tell me now? Because who's president? And then he says, Ronald Reagan. And then he says, well, now you're going to tell me that whoever it is, is the vice president, like, whatever it is. Like you see these kinds of odd things. So it's nice how in the book it was mentioning how just in a period of five years, there were so many things that had changed uh, for him. Like even, you know, whatever it was, like, I don't have a list offhand, but, you know, you just go to sleep for five years and you find that your whole life has changed. He's lost his wife and he's lost his job and he's just trying to get back on track. And he doesn't even know how to connect anymore because he's lost all that time. Yeah, they have a little bit of fun with that in the TV series. Um, Johnny has a, a friend who's his, a physical therapist and he's always talking about things and Johnny's saying, well, I have no idea what that is. And then, so I remember the therapist saying, uh, CD, it talks about CDs. And he said, you do know what CDs are, right? And he said, oh yeah, they had those before I had my accident. Yeah. And I think he, he follows, yeah. follows it up with uh, the line about, oh, I guess you don't know about OJ then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which yes. I just watched that last night and I was like, kind of made me laugh. It's like, I had almost forgotten about OJ, but uh, yeah. Because yeah, that yeah, was, that was uh, perfect timing in the series. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I guess that's, yeah, yeah. that's the series was now what twenty years ago, right? Hard to yeah, believe. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I know exactly. Mind yeah, blowing. Two thousand two to two thousand seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did watch the first four episodes. I didn't realize that series went on as long as it did because I think it went six or seven seasons and went eighty episodes. Uh, and Nicole DeBoer, David Ogden Steers, who I've always liked uh, from Mash, and also there was an episode of Next Generation called Half a Life, where he's a scientist who is turning sixty and yes. must die because that's his the trade on. And that one, uh, I know we're getting off track just a bit, but it's also a Lexana Troy episode that actually got people to like her and was a very emotional and powerful episode and also brought in as uh, David as uh, this um, scientist's daughter Michelle Forbes before she uh, be became um, uh, a regular in, in another role on the series but one of the things that I wanted to get into and I think Troy's going to have a lot of questions because Troy is, is uh, a huge fan of Stephen King and probably has a lot more in-depth and interesting questions. But one thing that I pressure. noticed in listening and, 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 and watching it, yeah, no pressure. 
is the influence of something wicked this way comes in in the uh, novel and and uh, the uh, I'm not sure how much in the movie to be honest, but certainly in the novel I don't know if you want to talk about the influence of Ray Bradbury and something wicked this way comes, Bev. Well, th tell me where you're coming from on this because uh, that that didn't come spring immediately to mind. Yeah, well, we it's uh, the lightning David... rod salesman is mentioned. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, six or seven go, times, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also uh, he even mentions something wicked this way comes as a title of a novel. And I think he does that at least twice in the yes. in the novel. Uh, Troy, I don't know if you have anything to to add to that or not. No, that was exactly it, and it was. Um, I was saying earlier that um, I guess I had read The Dead Zone prior to reading Something Wicked, which is maybe my favorite all-time uh, novel, period. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, you've basically covered it, David. I think it was the, the lightning rod salesman and the two two references. And, and, you know, King is great that way. He's always been somebody who is willing to acknowledge openly his influences and his loves. And um, so, uh, yeah, that was it. I was just yeah, wondering if you had any more about that, Bev. Not really. I was thinking more about the Irving story and how it's, it's especially in, in Christopher Walken's tale about how he, he, that was the last thing he was going to teach to his class. Oh, right. And, yeah. And how, and how it ends with, you know, because he was a teacher and didn't owe anybody any money and a single guy. So the fact that he just sort of vanished, nobody really worried their head about him. And that, yeah. and he said, and, and the, the, the person he's talking to says, is that what you're worried about? And he says, no, that's what I want. One thing I wanted to jump into before I sort of disappear, and you guys just talk King all the time, but um, is I was so impressed by the writing because King is known more as someone who just generates these bestsellers and isn't known as, as some great literary author or whatever a literary author is. And I found this sequence. Um, I was listening to the um, books on tape that was uh, James Franco reading it. Um, and then I realized, okay, well, this is 16 hours of James Franco in my ears. So I um, steadied myself. But there was a sequence um, where Johnny Smith and Sheriff Bannerman realize who the killer is and they've decided to find him. So I've got a few quotes here all in a row. And all of this, I've got five or six quotes here all occur within the period of two and a half minutes or so in the novel. And the first one is, and the storm tried to rip the words out of his mouth. Second quote. They set off hooded and booted a pair of shadows in the driving snow. Uh, next quote. They stepped out of the doorway and the wind grabbed them and tried to bowl them along the empty street. They struggled through the harsh, snow-choked flare of arc sodium streetlights bent into the wind. They turned into a side street and five houses down, Bannerman stopped and from the small and neat New England salt box, like the other houses on the street, it was dark and battened down. Uh, I've got two more quotes. They worked their way through the snowdrift the wind had thrown against the porch and mounted the steps. And the final quote, Mrs. Henrietta Dodd was a big woman who was carrying a dead weight of flesh on her frame. 
Johnny had never seen a woman who looked any sicker. Her skin was a yellowish gray. Her hands were nearly reptilian with an eczema-like rash. And there was something in her eyes, narrowing to glittering slits in their puffy sockets that reminded him unpleasantly of the way his mother's eyes had sometimes looked when Vera Smith was transported into one of her religious frenzies. So I think Stephen King, in my uh, sense, beyond things like the body and Shawshank Redemption may not be considered or up there with other writers. I don't think he's given a fair shot and I think he's underestimated a bit. So I was wondering how you guys feel about Stephen King and his writing. Well, I mean, it's, it's clear that the critical acceptance has changed over the decades. There was a time when things, and, and King himself was his, own worst enemy on this because he, you know, famously described his writing as the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and fries. <laughs> right. But his other sort of pat uh, comment on on literary acceptance is that the critics who really seem to have it in for him in the early days have all died, and so he's he's had a career that survived through them, and there's a new generation of people who are looking at him in a different light. I mean, the fact that he gets, he won the O. Henry Award. Um, he's been published in the New Yorker. Uh, you know, the literary establishment is a lot more uh, open to accepting him as more than, you know, the literary equivalent of Big Mac and Fries. Because really, he is writing at an incredible pace, which puts people off. They say, oh, you have to you know, slave and torment over a book for years and years you have to agonize over every word. And I think Steve does. I think he does agonize over word choice and over, you know, the literary presentation. It's just that he does it more quickly than people are comfortable with. And that was the big uh, negative that people, anybody who's prolific, people look at and say, well, you know, if, if they're writing that much, they can't be any good. They can't be putting that much attention to the detail. But I think, you know, People who don't even read King that much, who've read on writing, understand now, I think, better the, how much concern he has for writing as an art form. But on top of that, he's just an excellent, a natural-born storyteller. And that's what really sucks people in. He just knows how to create a story that rolls out and sweeps you in with characters that you want to spend time with. and. Of, you know, he's written in excess of 50 novels. And if you stuck any one of them in front of me, I could tell you a lot about the characters in that book. And that's not true of a lot of the other people who I've read. There are people who I've read as assiduously, but if you gave me one of their books, I might have to read the dust jacket. I might have to scan through a few pages. And even then I wouldn't really have the affinity for the characters that I do with King's books. For sure. Yeah, people want to make this distinction between uh, a writer and a storyteller, which uh, I don't get because when you get a, a novelist like King, clearly he's doing both. <laughs> he's telling incredible stories that are engaging that people can relate to and A, what's wrong with that? Um, but like the examples you found, that's peppered through all of the books, the great writing. Um, and and he was both a lover of and student of Bradbury. 
and and Bradbury had this wonderful mix of like prose poetry quite often, which some people now actually, fifty years after the fact, are not that enchanted with. But but King always had that blend. And the odd thing is, we as a society have this weird distrust of that which is popular. You know, it's like if it's popular, well, it can't be as good as you know some guy who's like you know working tables and writing his his one or two books through his lifetime. Um, but, you know, you have to remember that there are times when we've had people like Dickens, who who was incredibly popular at his time and, and, and was also held in a bit of contempt by the literati at, of the time. Um, but people always read him and have continued to read him. And I think that's what we're going to have with, with King. And uh, the same thing sort of held true with the Beatles. You know, at first people were like, you know, oh, just these, you know, these goofy, goofy pop music, but it's not real music. And it's like, oh, guess what? They're not going away. Uh, you know, the change that they they instituted in those 10 years. Oh, by the way, I'm finally doing it, David. Bev, I always said that for every show that we've done, I could make a Beatles reference, but I don't. But um, but here it is, because I think it is a, a good one. Um you know, and, and the thing is, King, I, like my favorite people in art, other than the two that I've just mentioned, like with, with Dickens and, and the Beatles. Oh, gosh, uh, David, I hope I don't get us canceled if I if reference Woody Allen. But like Woody Allen, Neil Young and Stephen King, when I think of those three people, they've put out works of art pretty much every year of their life since they started for, with Woody Allen and Neil Young. It was around 66. Um, and every year since then, they've put out work. And to me, that's a sign of a great artist as well, that you're, that consistency. It's not like you have this one story to tell. You know, you can keep it coming. You're, you're not only are you an artist, you're a craftsman. Um, and we're going to be telling these stories, especially because King's stories, so many of them have been adapted into film. They're part of the zeitgeist of the late 20th century and early 21st century. Um, I don't, you just cannot, um, diss King in any way that's, uh, uh, an easy sell. And, and the dead zone is really where the zeitgeist first, first roots of it take place because it's the first book in which a character references another Stephen King creation, not as an internal mm -hmm. reference, but as Stephen King is a person who exists in the world. And the character says, He's just like that girl in that movie, Carrie. And yeah. so by, you know, in the span of less than a decade, even King realizes that his creations are part of the larger world and the people who live in that world would be aware of them. Right. Bev, does, I, I don't have my list in front of me. Does Cujo follow the dead zone pretty much immediately or is that? I, I think Firestarter comes next. Oh, right. That's right. But, but Castle Rock is really the beginning of the Stephen King universe. Right. It's the first story where King now starts referencing things that happen in other books. Yeah. Creating this bigger, like the, the, the uh, you know, the Marvel universe, it, the Stephen King universe. Cujo follows on from the, from the dead zone, mostly through the tie with Bannerman the mention of uh of the of the murders and, and dodd and that's just something that expands more and more not everything the king writes is part of this you know master universe but uh 
this is where it really starts. Yeah. And I suppose we should um, give some, some more love to the movie. Um, I'm a huge Cronenberg fan um, and sort of the combination of, uh, I like the early work, but the dead zone really hooked me. And then the fly right after it. Um, it's funny. I, I saw a, a clip of um, Ebert and Siskel and one of them actually mentions in their review that uh, Christopher Walken should have been nominated or should be nominated, but but genre films never get nominations with the Academy. Um, and that was certainly true. Um, it, it's just a, a great, a great work. Um, uh, Dave, do you want to talk about, uh, you know, any interpretations or feelings about The Dead Zone? The film? Uh, well, um, yeah, one thing... Um... Uh, I think it, 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 someone just at the back of the room has held up the 10 minute sign. Um, God already metaphorically. So figuratively. Um, but the one thing I did want to just jump in with is that this is the first time I've actually got an audible account and uh, downloaded the dead zone. That's my first uh, audio book. Um, this uh, read by James Franco, 16 hours. Now, just sort of as a as a joke, and I'm just partly kidding, that after listening to the audiobook of The Dead Zone, uh, which is 16 hours, it felt more like 127 hours. And at the end of it, I wanted to bite my own arm off. But I'm just kidding, of course. Um, James Franco is a very talented and is a very good uh, person, and I'm a fan of his. But I, I, we're going to be moving on very soon to our... Um, our um, dream casting but i was wondering if you guys just wanted to mention just quickly about the 11 um the fact that james franco's connection to that yeah well the, the james franco is is the star of the uh the uh hulu uh limited series adaptation he plays jake epping who is the uh, person who's presented with the possibility to go back in time and explore the Kennedy assassination to see if he can change it and what the consequences of changing it are. Um, it also introduced to me uh, Sarah Gadden, uh, a Canadian actress who, who plays his love interest. And uh, she has become an immediate favorite of mine. Uh, I've seen her in several other things. One in which she plays a young, uh, well, Elizabeth before she's queen. Um, it's a, I can't remember the name of the story, but it's one where uh, Elizabeth and Anne have a night out. They get away from the palace and they go out and have this sort of uh, evening away uh, anonymous. Um, but yeah, she's also in the, the uh, Margaret Hatwood uh, adaptation as well. So yeah, so Franco has uh, got his connections uh, to the Stephen King universe as well. Yeah, in eleven twenty two sixty three is is pretty stellar. Um, I would rate it as one of my favorite adaptations with sort of the caveat that um, the character of Bill in the miniseries kind of drives me nuts. Um, it's been said that the reason Robin was created for Batman and Detective Comics was so that Batman could give exposition on what he was doing. And that's exactly what happens with Bill. Uh, it's, it's not the same in the novel. Bill only exists for, I think, about maybe a third of the novel. And, and then he's gone. 
but uh, they keep him around longer than he needs to be, I think. So uh, Jake Epping, the character played by James Franco, can explain <laughs> what's going on. And it just, it's uh, it gets a little bit frustrating. But other than that, I would probably give it like a 7.5 out of 10, maybe pushing an 8 because I love the story so much. And the book, you have to read the book. Um, I don't know anybody who's read the book and not cried at the end. And, and I've read it three times now and still, like, it gets me. Are you a fan of that okay, one, Bev, um, or in, so, in, oh, in general? Oh, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yep. Yeah. We on the Dreamcasting, David. Yep. Go ahead. Take it away, Troy. Okay, well, this is just a segment that we have started recently that um, uh, we basically go through the major uh, roles in the film and we get to play casting agent as I go through my page, just trying to find it. Um, and so we decided we would go, oh, actually here's, here's who was in the film. If you're not sure, uh, Christopher Walken was Johnny Smith. Brooke Adams played Sarah Bracknell, the wonderful Tom Skerritt, who's been in a handful of King adaptations, play Sheriff Bannerman, uh, Herbert Long, was Dr. Sam Wyzak. Uh, Anthony Zerb was Roger Stewart. And Martin Sheen, the always incredible Martin Sheen, was Greg Stilson. All right, so here is our all-time casting uh, for The Dead Zone. Are we going to go one at a time here, David? Yep. Okay. Well, as the everyman... I had to go with Jimmy Stewart. I actually thought, oh, well, Tom Hanks would be a natural for this. Um, but I went with Jimmy Stewart because Jimmy Stewart's sort of the original Tom Hanks. Uh, Bev, who would you have in that role? I actually did think Jimmy Stewart, but I settled on Matt Damon. Nice. And David. Okay, my list, I have to go to the next page, so so watch your eyes as I go to this. Well, I have <laughs> right. Donald Sutherland from his role in Murder by Decree because he was playing that psychic, and he's just so odd. And so if, if people are familiar with Murder by Decree, um, uh, which yes, is Sherlock Holmes. That's a Bob uh, Clark film. Christopher Plummer and James Mason. Oh, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Bob Clark, super uh, underrated director. Okay, we're moving on to Johnny's the love of his life, Sarah Bracknell. Bracknell. Um, I was torn. I was thinking sort of more modern, and I'm a huge fan of Alison Brie. So I'm going Alison Brie. Yeah, so you need girl next door type, which is why I really liked Nicole DeBoer in the TV series. Um, yeah. I came up with oh, so Rachel McAdams. Nice. Except, you know, now I'm thinking about Sarah Gadden, too. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Yeah. I had Audrey Hepburn, um, and obviously I have the wrong film connected to it, but I have Audrey Hepburn in that role. I always get my Hepburns confused at first. I have to sort of really think about it. So this is Breakfast at Tiffany, Tiffany's Hepburn? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Not Catherine. Yes, yes. All righty. And then we have Dr. Sam Wyzak, who was uh, really wonderfully played by Herbert Long. 
Um, I wanted somebody, you know, as sort of a, a, a Polish Jewish doctor. And I was thinking Dustin Hoffman, but in the end, I went with Roman Polanski. So clearly this would be a film shot in Europe somehow. <laughs> so I, I went back to my Canadian roots and I picked Saul Rubinek. Nice. That's a good one. Okay. Um, so I had Burt Lancaster from Field of Dreams. I was thinking of the older doctor kind of thing. Right, right, right. And I've always liked Burt Lancaster in that role. Very powerful, emotional yeah. scene at the end of that film. Yeah, and he would give good advice to Johnny. Okay, so yeah. Sheriff Bannerman. So I need to to wing this one. Let me go. Can I go last? Well, you two hash it out. Oh, for sure. Okay. okay. So, so my, my favorite, my favorite lawman, Timothy Oliphant from Justified. And I have a feeling that my one uh, for the sheriff is Gary Cooper from High Noon. Okay. And the sheriff um, could also be the guy from Walking Dead even. Who who played, um, he played Hellboy, but he also played uh, the sheriff in Desperation. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. I will go with Ron Perlman as Sher Sheriff Bannerman just so he can do a nice version of a sheriff <laughs> or a nicer version because... King fans love their Sheriff Bannerman. Okay, that's me. Uh, and now <laughs> we're moving on to Roger Stewart, the character I couldn't even remember. Um, let's see. I feel like, oh, yes. Um, I'm, I'm sticking with the West Wing. And if I can't get Bradley Whitford. Let me do Bradley Whitford as, uh, as Roger Stewart. Hold on. Do we don't have Frank, okay. Frank Dodd in our list. We have we have Roger Stewart, but we don't have Frank Dodd. Yeah, it's an odd list. Uh, <laughs> okay. and, and I've got for Roger Stewart, I have Spencer Tracy. Uh, I have Donald role. Sutherland. Thinking of uh, his uh, character in Ordinary People. And we've got Greg <laughs> Stilson. Do you have a Greg Stilson at all, um, Troy? Or is this... I do, but you're going to kill me. I actually was thinking Bradley Whitford earlier for him, and then uh, I just uh, I've, I just switched over again to an actor whose name I can't recall. How 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 excellent is that? Who played Zod in in um, in uh, Man of Steel? Definitively, David. Greg Stilson Stilson should be Michael Shannon. How about you guys? Uh, that's a great. Um... I had Cary Grant myself from North by Northwest. Ooh, an evil Cary Grant. And, and, and you know what my answer is? What's that? Martin Sheen. Oh, just, you just, I love it. You can't do better. I thought of that. I thought of, again, <laughs> repurposing Martin Sheen. I'm glad you did, Bev. I'm glad you did. He is incredible, <laughs> you know, the characters that he pulls off. Excellent. Yeah, and it's very lands. cool. This whole connection, this connection with with Martin Sheen, him being the senator trying to become president, and what happens when Martin Sheen becomes president is the end of the world. So let's stop it. But then he's a pretty darn good president in the West Wing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so here's a little bit of uh, Martin Sheen trivia. Uh -huh. So in the movie, in the crucial climactic scene where Johnny's up on the balcony 
ready to make his shot and this photographer shows up and starts taking pictures. Yeah. The actor is Ramon Estevez, Mark Machine's son. Oh, so neat. So you have a little something special for us there, right, David? <laughs> yeah, I've got an idea of because what I wanted to do last time we had like all time actors and we had current actors, and then I went kind of nuts and was talking about putting the characters from Blade Runner that I wanted to grab from the two greatest films of all time, which last week's two weeks ago when we did the Blade Runner episode, I thought that not Citizen Kane or Casablanca, the two greatest films of all time are Working Girl and Roadhouse. And I took the characters from those films and put them into the roles of Roy Batty and Deckard and others. So I was thinking that we could have fun with Outside the Box, where you either take another film or characters from a TV series or a comic strip or anything. You can grab characters from High and Lois, for God's sake. But whatever it is, we go completely outside the box and have a bit of fun with this. So I've done that. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to be able to do that or not. I did. I have my list. I think I will enjoy the two All of right, you yeah. doing this. Now, do you, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um, uh, I'll go first this time. So okay. we're going to do the, we're going to do the Deadwood version of the Dead Zone. Ooh, a Deadwood Dead Zone. Okay, like it. <laughs> Timothy Ol <laughs> Timothy Oliphant will play Johnny Smith. Nice. Uh, Kim uh, Dickens. Keep going. You want to give your whole list? Yep. Kim That's Dickens awesome. will play Sarah. Yep. Ian McShane as Sheriff Bannerman. Brad Dourif as Doctor Wyzak. Oh, you cannot lose with Brad Dourif. Jim Beaver as Roger Stewart. And Gerald McRaney as Greg Stilson. That is a hell of a list. With a special appearance by Titus Williver as Frank Dodd. <laughs> there we go. I cannot believe we didn't get Dodds. By the way, one of the people I was thinking of for Frank Dodd was Crispin Glover, who um, Charlene had repurposed for our Blade Runner show. And I think Dane DeHaan, who plays the bad person in uh, Lisey's story, would be a good uh, Frank Stilson yeah, I'm going to buckle up. I'm going to buckle up here, David. I'm ready for. I'm ready for turbulence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is the Andy Griffith show, or Andy of Mayberry, whatever you call it, from the early '60s. So I've got Jim Neighbors in his role as Gomer Pyle as Johnny Smith, um, and Arlene Galanka, who showed up as a Millie Hutchins as, as a love interest <laughs> for Johnny Smith. Now Andy Griffith would be who played andy taylor would be sheriff bannerman um don knotts uh would be dr sam wyzak um, crazy Lindsay, who played goober pile actually he was since uh, yeah, yeah i almost think that goober pile should have actually probably been greg stilson but i have him as roger stewart and howard mcnear who was actually the barber on the uh, andy griffith show would be greg stilson so i know i went a bit too far on this one but i thought i would have a bit of fun i like it well but you know what you do need to have ron howard a young ronnie howard as frank dodd i think i just want to see a little like young ronnie howard wearing that slicker <laughs> or ron howard being held up, being being held shot, up. and they'd no. say are you going to shoot me i'm going to hold up ron howard <laughs> little baby ron howard yeah um oh and by the way i just want to throw in work. not not that we were, not that I proposed it, but if I was to have a director from my all-time 
uh, well, I broke it into current and all-time director for a remake of this film. Uh, Mike Flanagan, because I love Mike Flanagan and all of his adaptations oh, wow. so far. Um, and of course, I think Hitchcock would have done an amazing classic version of this had he been alive. Um, yeah. But I do like your, I like your Mayberry uh, version, Castle Mayberry, I guess that it would be, or Mayberry Rock, something like that. Yeah. Well, to close well, out the show, because I do love the idea of having outside the box, just two, fi one final, two final things. One is, uh, Bev, thanks again for, for joining us. But I was just wondering if there is anything that you may have picked up just in the last five or 10 years about the dead zone that you may not have known before that possibly surprised you or something that you learned that you didn't know about before. Is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head? You know, in, in watching the movie again to prepare for this uh, interview, it was more of a realization than a discovery. And the realization is that Johnny dodged a bullet. The woman that he was going to marry ended up to be somebody who not only supported Stilson, she campaigned for him. So she, if she were in 2021, she would be wearing a red hat. And I think that I think he was better off without her. <laughs> yeah, true enough. True enough. Um, Bev, I wanted to just uh, thank you so much for coming on. And please, uh, in a second, I'll, I'm going to throw over to you and you can tell us uh, where we can learn more about you for folks who, who aren't aware, uh, where they can find your stuff. I want to... Uh, throw a shout out to uh, a few of your books, um, The Ogilvy Affair, it's a novella. Um, it's uh, it's wonderful to say, uh, I guess it's a, a murder mystery, right? Um, Dissonant Harmonies by yourself and Brian Keene, it's two novellas um, uh, based around uh, playlists that you made for each other, musical playlists. Um, and again, Flight or Fright, um, edited by yourself and Stephen King, a great collection of stories around air travel, horrific stories around air travel. And I don't know, could you actually quickly uh, sort of give us the background of uh, the night that Stephen proposed the idea to you? Flight um, or Fright? I was, yeah, I was in Bangor to see the uh, world premiere of the Dark Tower movie. And a lot of people had come in uh, people from Sony had come in from the West Coast. Uh, Robin Firth had come in. Rich Chismar from Cemetery Dance was there with his sons. A lot of people had come in for this thing. And King's Office hosted a dinner before we went to see the movie. And Bangor is not the easiest place in the world to get to. Um, you always have to take a little puddle jumper at the end. So everybody had their horror stories about what went wrong that day in getting there. That as Steve was going around working the room, people are telling him all these stories that just struck him. And he came right over. I was sitting with Richard Chismar at the, and his sons at the time. And he just said, I've got this wonderful idea for this anthology. He said, well, I had, he had just been reading Arthur Conan Doyle's War of the Heights. And he said, we'll gather together all the great stories about horror stories about fly. And he looked at Richard Chismar and he said, of course, you can publish it. And then he sort of pauses for a second and says, but I'm going to need some help finding the stories. And he turns to me and he said, that'll be your job. And I've always joked and said, you know, if I'd gone to the bathroom at that point and not been present when he came up with the idea, it could have been somebody else who got that gig. But... <laughs> so I got the gig to uh, work on collecting the stories with him. 
And you guys have a, a wonderful book there. Okay. Uh, right. And is there, so what are you working on now, Bev? Um, uh, beside the two novellas that you just mentioned, the, the big thing that we're promoting at the moment is uh, an anthology that I got uh, an interesting process into it. It's a, an anthology that's based on the Renegade Legion's uh, board games. And the, there's a group called Budgie Smugglers who are a gaming company and they're rebuilding, rebooting this, this concept. And they asked for pitches uh, for science fiction stories set in this 70, year 7500 universe that they have mapped out in intricate, intricate detail, this whole galaxy of species and inter, you know, history and geography and geopolitics. And so I pitched a story for them about a mercenary. And it was an interesting experience because I've written in-world stories before. I've written for Doctor Who stories and X-Files stories. But this is one where I didn't have a previous familiarity. And it's a huge concept. And so there was a lot of information to download. And so that was a really uh, uh, exciting and interesting process, very interactive process with the editors. The anthology is just out. It's called Voices of Varuna. Uh, and my story is called The Blaze of Glory. Excellent. Well, thanks again for, congratulations, uh, for joining ben. us. Mm. Thank, you. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 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 thank you so much for spending uh, your time with us. And we certainly do look forward to uh, next season, maybe in November or December, having you back and we either look at on writing or the Dark Tower um, and just do something like that. Because I think we had a lot of fun today and, and I think it worked out very well. And thank you so much for your expertise and and your time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I certainly enjoyed it. Long days and pleasant nights. <laughs> there will be water if God wills it. Mm. The ice is gonna break!